Well, thank you guys for sharing this time uh, together this weekend. It's been fun to get to know you guys and see you in action in your movie in a minute and, and just see those personalities come out. And, and again, I just want to commend you for taking time when you've got a lot of other options to seek God and to, to spend time with other believers who are trying to seek Him. And I just commend you for your openness to Him and His Word. And, and just keep with that. Stick with it. And, and some of you are just still in, in your first year in college. Some of you are almost on your way out. But, uh, but hang in there and continue to pursue the heart of God. And, and uh, this last time together, we'll focus on the self-sacrificing quality of God's love, that he is, he is willing to give to the fullest extent for us. And hopefully, getting a chance to think about the holiness of God and the uniqueness of God and the implications of that, that he's the only one that is worthy of our worship, uh, puts us in a place to receive what God has to say about his, his willingness to sacrifice and and give of himself uh, to help us receive that as, as the kind of amazing good news that it is. I mean, if he is a, a, a brilliant, holy being radiating this, this glory and majesty, and, and, and that at the sight of him, Isaiah says, woe to me, I'm ruined. And if he is the one who says, I challenge anybody, to see if, if you're better than me. I, I'm the one that should be worshipped. Then we're ready to see that it is, it is kind of shocking that he would say, and when you mess up, and when you're out of step with me, I'm just as intense about my willingness to pursue and to, and to give and to sacrifice, to restore you. And Isaiah's a long book, but if we were reading along the way, we would, we would see little glimpses of this along the way. And we, we got to see it even um, in, in chapter 44 this morning when he says, I'll sweep away your, your sin. And we got to see it in 6 when Isaiah was cleansed with the coal from the altar. Um, but of course, Isaiah 53, where we're going to be right now, really just lays it out for us. And hundreds of years before um, Christ came into this world, God said, I have a servant. I have, I have one of my own who's going to come, and he is going to pay with his own blood to cleanse you. And there's again, there's been hints about this. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, he's talked about a... a uh, a sprout coming out of the stump of Jesse. Most of us didn't grow up with a Jewish background, but from a Jewish point of view, well, that's an interesting thing to say. Hundreds of years after the life of David, the king of Israel, the good king, the first good king, whose dad was Jesse, who got promised that a king would come from his line that would rule forever, God, in the midst of the prediction of his judgment, says, but there's going to be a sprout out of the stump of Jesse, amen? <laughs> and he was saying, I have a servant coming. And it's interesting to read what Jewish folks thought about this passage long before the time of Jesus. It's confusing. 
It's confusing that God would bring a servant out of the family of Jesse who would reign forever and then talk about him being pierced, crushed, punished, be someone that when people look at, they're appalled and they're, they're turned away with disgust. How, how do you make sense of this passage? And really, the, the section starts in the chapter before giving kind of an overview. And then 53 gives almost a play-by-play. And so Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, it says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred like beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. For what they have not heard, they will understand. So he says, my servant will be wise, he will be exalted. Even though he was disfigured and marred, he will be glorious. And even though folks hadn't heard, they will now see. And that really is pointing to the fact that this is going to be a message, not just for the nation of Israel, as big of a deal as that was for them, but for the whole world, for all people. And so as we move into chapter 53, really my, my idea with this is just that it's an opportunity to walk through these verses and just reflect on what Christ did. I know probably for most of you, if, if you've been around church, these aren't new verses, there's parts of Isaiah that we could read and focus on that, that maybe you never heard of before, but you actually probably have heard of this one. But that's okay. Sometimes the real value in the attributes of God is simply allowing our minds to, to settle and to rest long enough to just ponder and, and to hold in our consciousness the reality that God is, is like this, that he would do this for us. That same holy God that... In, in, you know, just enraptured the, the seraphim and, and brought Isaiah to, to a feeling of ruin, says, I will give my own son for you. So as we move into chapter 53, he begins, who has believed our message? Who, to whom has the Lord, arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, using that same language from earlier. And like a root out of dry ground, he has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. It's interesting to think about the birth and the, and the life of Jesus. Of course, we just passed through Christmas, so it's an opportunity to maybe think about Mary and Joseph and all those things. But very humble beginning to his life. We know from the fact that Mary and Joseph offer doves instead of a lamb when consecrating them as the firstborn child of their family, that they're poor. Uh, Joseph was a carpenter, but it wasn't like he was the head of a multinational construction company. He was perhaps a day laborer. When they move, go from Nazareth to Bethlehem for the birth of Jesus, they stay there. That he's almost an itinerant worker going where there's a job for him. Just getting by. Born into a poor family. In, of course, a, a very humble situation. And that 
uh, the witnesses, initial witnesses to the birth of Jesus aren't kings and, and, uh, and the, the nobles of the land. They're donkeys <laughs> and, and sheep and, and shepherds because it was a humble situation. Little town, no-name couple. Yeah, they're from the line of David. Matthew starts the New Testament actually helping us see those connections. But a humble beginning. Nothing about him that on the surface people would say, there's the one. It's interesting that in the, all the material we have, half of our New Testament is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Very little about his appearance. It wasn't the fact that he was tall, dark, and handsome, dynamic in his speaking, uh, attractive and prestigious and sophisticated. That wasn't anything about it. People said he speaks different than other folks. He speaks as one with authority. But as far as the basics of what people are drawn to, nothing like that in the Gospels. Humble beginnings. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And in fact, he was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And he, we held him in low esteem. We didn't think much of him. When Jesus was crucified... There were a lot of things happening all at once. Of course, it's no small thing to imagine the, the physical pain he would have gone through. One Roman author um, from around the time of Jesus talks about just the horrific nature of crucifixion. He says just the flogging alone, that was always kind of a standard part of the preparation for someone getting crucified, uh, often killed people because of the shredding of the flesh and the loss of blood and the, the shock of that process. The Jews had a law that you couldn't whip somebody more than 40 times, so often they would do 40 minus 1, 39, just to make sure. The Romans, on the other hand, could whip you and beat you as long as they felt like it until they got tired. And Jesus would have gone through a physical experience of pain before he even gets to the cross, that is beyond what most of us hopefully will ever have to endure. That same Roman author says that crucifixion in, its, in itself is, is so stomach-turning. I'm paraphrasing what he, would say, what he would say if he was in our time. He, they didn't have this kind of terminology. But he said, you basically have to be a sociopath to even watch a crucifixion. You, you have to have something wrong with you to even be able to just sit there and observe hours of someone hanging from nails in their wrists, flesh hanging off their body, blood, plasma. It's in Jesus' time, it was, it was spring, so nice fresh air, crusty, bugs. It, it was, even as a Roman official, he said, this, we maybe need to consider this thing. Because this that thing that we do. I know we do it for our worst criminals. But he was almost writing to say, this is, this is hellish. Roman citizens were spared from going through crucifixion. Not everybody under Roman rule was a citizen. This was, this was reserved for non-citizen 
rebel kind of criminals, not just anybody. And so the physical experience Jesus went through is is still to this day one of the most innovative, horrific ways anybody's ever thought of to kill somebody. You, you throw that into the, into the mix in a Jewish context, and there is a psychological and, and social and religious dimension to this that is appalling. This language of, of it, was, if it was horrible to consider. Um, for them, this is a sign that God must be against you. Uh, the Romans would, would not... Sometimes you'll see artistic portrayals of, of crucifixions you know, almost as a sil- crosses as a silhouette way off in the distance, that old rugged cross on a hill far away. Now, they would put them right along the side of the road so that way friends, family, neighbors say, see this is what happens if you mess with us. Strip them down to their loincloth, hang them on the side of the road so that nobody ever thinks to do the same horrible thing that this person must have done. Not only that, the particular uh, method of crucifixion happens to perfectly fall in line with Deuteronomy 21, where it says that anyone who dies on a tree is accursed by God. God is against them. It's this amazing thing to consider that God in his wisdom, knowing what he was going to do, wove in a law that says this way of dying is a sign of judgment. From God. The Apostle Paul, writing in Galatians in chapter 3, says that's part of what he took from us is our curse, the curse of the law, the, the psychological, religious, spiritual connotations of God being against you. And it's hard to get our minds around that in terms of God being against himself and the Father giving the Son to this type of oppression. But he was seen by friends, families, neighbors as wicked because of this. And it's hard to imagine what that would have felt like. You add that to the physical pain, you add that to the, to the, to the, uh, the prolonged nature of it. He, it, was, it was a horrible thing. Like one from whom people hide their face, he was despised. Verse 4, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, that language of curse. So what's happening in in this text, he's predicting what's happening in that moment is the punishment we deserve, he's experiencing. The iniquity, the, the sin, the uncleanness that we that we created. He's taking it, yet in the midst of that, in a very tangible way, the people would have, around him would have said, you're being punished by God. Maybe it makes sense, helps us make sense a little bit of why Jesus would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, it's hard to understand how that works within the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, and, and, and the Father turning his sight away from the Son. I, I don't know. But it was for us. It was for our transgressions. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. Sounds a lot like Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. There is this, this key issue that what is happening is our sin being dealt with. Through Him being pierced, through His experience of death, forgiveness is brought about. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us go in our own way. And the Lord has laid on us, on Him, the iniquity of us all. Our natural bent is towards sin. comes natural to us. We like it. We do it easily. We're all like sheep. We go our own way. But our wickedness was laid on Him. He was oppressed and afflicted. Verse 7, Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. At the trial of Jesus, Pilate, that wuss, wants to like somehow get it to be somebody else's fault. He feels politically pinned into a corner. Uh, Pontius Pilate had a rough beginning to his time as governor of Judea. He came in and tried to do something to show his loyalty to Rome, and so he put up these crests in the temple of Caesar's face, and a bunch of Jewish leaders threw themselves on the ground and said, we'd rather you chop our heads off than put these up here in the temple. He was like, whoa, that was intense. I didn't expect this. Usually people don't care this much about their temples. You guys are intense. Tried a few other things. He tried to use some temple tax money to do some projects, and, and similarly, people freaked out. So he's feeling the, that he might be on the hot seat a little bit politically. And he, he visits with Jesus, and he says, I don't see anything wrong with the guy. So he tries to hand him off to Herod, who is the governor of Galilee, where Jesus had been living and ministering. He says, okay, here's my out. I'll send him to Herod. Herod knows a lot about Jesus. He's been working in his territory. He's, he's an Idumean. He's a distant cousin of the Jewish people, but he's ruling as a governor or king in that area. His dad, Herod the Great, crazy guy, tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. Now Herod, the son, gets to check out Jesus, and it says that he'd been waiting to see him do a miracle. He's like, do a show for me. I'm finally getting to meet this guy. And Jesus wouldn't say a word. He wouldn't play along. And so it says that Herod and the soldiers and the religious leaders who were there began to mock him. You've said you're a king. Act like a king. Show us. They began to spit on him, put a robe on him, mocked him and bowed down. And he didn't say a word. And most of us have a real hard time not sticking up for ourselves or snapping back when somebody offends us. And Jesus silently took the shame, the mockery, on his way to, to death. People said, you said you could save people, save yourself. He didn't speak up. What a profound strength to just endure it, to just take it. The, the mental, the psychological, the emotional impact of these types of things. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was punished. This is strange, but for whatever reason, at this point in my 
reflections about the death of Jesus, this verse might actually be the saddest one to me. Who spoke up in protest? Jesus was abandoned by his closest friends. When he got arrested, they ran scared. Peter, that guy who said, oh, I'll die with you. Let's go. Abandon him. Even John, who comes back around and, and will be at the cross, initially runs away. In Jerusalem, at his trials, people are yelling, crucify him, and not one person speaks up in his defense. He's sitting there silent, and none of the people who he'd healed said, hold up, this guy's good. I was born blind, and, and now I see. Nobody who couldn't walk came running in after he'd healed them and said, this guy's good. His brothers who had been around him their whole life, don't say a word. Imagine the isolation he felt. Every single person close to him. And of course, as we know, one of his own disciples, Judas, betrayed him in the first place to even get him in this situation. No one of his generation spoke up in his defense. You got people after the fact, like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus saying, we'll take the body, we'll bury him. You know, we'll, I guess we're willing now to be associated with him. No one spoke up in his defense, yet quietly, peacefully, entrusting himself to his father, he took it for our sake. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Crucified between two criminals, one of, even, one of whom even participates in the mocking. Even criminals make fun of this guy. And he was buried in a, in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, and assigned a place among the very people who had uh, been disobeying the words of God, out of step with his heart, and brought about his punishment. Verse 10, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This is an interesting verse. This little verse right here, as we're, as we're immersing our minds in the experience of what he would have gone through, lets us know, though, God was in control. And it was his will for this to happen. And as Aaron was saying, while it was a very difficult experience, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. In fact, in John chapter 10, he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down to take it up again. And there's some fascinating details about the way Jesus died that speak to the, the sense that he is in control, even though he is going through this. Uh, most People who die from crucifixion die from hypovolemic shock, blood loss, or asphyxiation because the body's getting so tired that, and you're, you have no strength anymore. The diaphragm cannot any longer bring air into the lungs, and you suffocate. Both of those are a, a quiet death. Lots of ways to die. These are quiet deaths. 
you suffocate, you have no voice. You die of blood loss, you, you fade out. Yet it says that in a loud voice, Jesus called out and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. That moment actually causes a Roman guard who's seen a lot of crucifixions. It's his job. He's one of these sociopaths that the Roman author wrote about that does this for a living. When he, heard, when he saw him and heard him cry out in a loud voice, he said, surely this guy is the son of a god. He knows you don't die this way from crucifixion. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I believe, and this is, this is a little bit weird, it's a little bit out there, I believe Jesus chose the exact moment when he died. Now it's time. It's even interesting that to confirm the death, they go around and they need to speed things along because the, uh, the Jewish Passover is happening, so they go break the legs of the two guys because that speeds along the process of being unable to lift yourself up to breathe. And they notice Jesus seems to be already dead. To confirm it, they put a spear in his side, and it specifically says that blood and, and water flow out. Now we understand uh, that that's evidence of uh, pericardial effusion, that fluid had filled the, the, the sac containing the heart, and that the rupturing of the heart had, uh, had filled the sac with blood, and so that an immediate release of blood and water shows that he didn't die, most likely from hypovolemic shock or asphyxiation, but from, from a ruptured heart. This is crazy, but I think that Jesus said, now it's okay for my life to end. And that when he says in John 10, I lay my life down, he really means it, that I, he picks. And so what I'm getting at with that is that while pondering the death of Jesus should hopefully move us to some pretty intense emotions, pity is not one of the right emotions to have. It was his will. It was his choice. It was the self-sacrificing nature of God on display. And that while it was difficult and painful and isolating, and he, he labored in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, I don't want, is there another way? Not my will, but yours be done. Ultimately, it is by his will, it, it pleased him to do this because this holy God, this Demanding God, who's jealous and says, no one, you don't worship anybody but me, says that in your failure, I myself will provide the atoning sacrifice. It's his will. It's his choice. Nobody made him. Nobody coerced him. Nobody manipulated him. Just as confident as he is when he says, there's nobody but me, he says, I will lay down my life. Verse 11, after he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. The light of life and justification are mentioned there. And so we see that, that part of the plan of God and, and Jesus' knowledge of what was going on here was looking ahead to his resurrection. 
Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. And even this strength that Jesus had within himself, Hebrews 12 says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. It's shameful. It's isolating. It's a sign of oppression. But he scorned it. He says, I do it anyway because of the joy set before him. And and then this passage ends, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. He will pour out his life unto death. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He gave himself, and so he's elevated to glory. He's put at the right hand of the Father. He is the, the lamb looking as if it had been slain in Revelation that has, is worthy to un, un, open the scroll because he purchased people for God by his own blood. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself, taking on the form of, the ser- of a servant and gave himself so much to this form of a servant that he endured death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God gave him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. And so in the midst of this, this is where this is heading, is life and provision and intercession. Intercession is the language of, pre- of the priesthood. He's our high priest. He's at the right hand, forever interceding for our behalf. He says, if you pray anything in my name, you have it. Now, I've heard that for years, like, that's why we say in Jesus' name, amen, at the end. That's how you close a prayer up. Got to do it in the name of Jesus. What he's getting at is that the access we have to the Father, the right we have to approach this holy God, is that we come in the name of the Son. He's taken our iniquity away, and it's His righteousness that gives us access to God. And when we pray, it's as if He's praying it on our behalf. When you ask this, I'm asking it for you. He's forever interceding for, on our behalf. And so, the, the end result of this is this joyous provision, this joyous experience in the presence of God, the promises that we have because of the work of Christ are so insane. It says that we're adopted as his own children. It says that we reign with him and that our, his inheritance is now our inheritance. I mean, a craziness of what we get because of what he's done. That is the self-sacrificing nature of God. And so a few implications of this, at very least, hopefully, is gratitude. That we have hearts full of gratitude. In, in letting our minds rest on what Christ has done isn't, isn't my goal for, is not to make you feel bad, is not to make you feel more guilt or shame. Look at what you did to him. But to have a, a, a sense of, of overwhelming gratitude. I tell my kids and, and I tell myself, there's no situation that we will ever be in that there, there isn't at least something we can be grateful for. Because of this, when you ponder the self-sacrificing love of God, no matter how poor you get, no matter how sick you get, no matter how many people dislike you or opposed to you, no no matter how many things don't work out for you in life, there is always reason to be full of gratitude because of this. And and grateful people are, are dangerous. Paul talks 
in Philippians, the book of joy is a happy book, right? Well, there's an irony to the book of Philippians that he wrote it in chains. He's like, I'm good. He's, somebody probably wrote it down for him. He was getting, he was a little beat up and a little chained up. But he said, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Always bring a heart of joy in your prayers, he says. Philippians 4 is where we get that verse, I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. Now, I don't know if that means you can win a track meet or a, a Grammy or whatever, but I know it means something actually cooler than that. That in the worst of circumstances, you can be alright. He says, I'm fine. I'm good. Don't worry about me. I'm worried about you. Do you have joy? Are you happy? Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. I'm fine. I'm in chains, but whatever. No big deal. He'd come to a place where gratitude had so filled his heart that he says, I can do anything through him who gives me strength. I know what it's like to be free and warm and well-fed. I also know what it's like to be chained up, cold and hungry. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Hearts of gratitude, that resilience, that, that peace, that restfulness that says there's, there's not something out there. There's not something I got to do to make sure I'm okay. Because what he's done for me, I'm good. Grateful hearts. Heart, uh, an unquenchable gratitude. Hopefully it compels us to, to be a little more selfless in our love. Hopefully one of the implications of pondering the self-sacrificing nature of God is that, well, you know what? I guess I ought to serve somebody else too. Jesus says in John 13, 34, Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Again, the irony is so thick. He says that on a night that they are just hours away from abandoning him. He's just washed their feet. He's about to go to the cross for them. They will abandon him. They will run away afraid. They will deny knowing him. And he says, the way I love you, love each other. Somebody wronged you. Somebody abandoned you. Somebody betrayed you. He gets it. Love the way I love you. Hard thing, but hopefully as we ponder his self-sacrifice, we are willing to be selfless in similar ways. And finally, hopefully it helps us feel a, an energy and, and passion to share this good news. Scott talked about it. I mean, part, one of the five things is to be on mission. And God has placed you in a situation in life now and will in the future where you're around people who haven't ever heard about this. I mean, maybe they've heard bits and pieces. Maybe they've heard hints of it. But there are friends, there are potentially family that you have that, that literally don't fully get the fact that God loves them this deeply. They don't get that God's as holy as He is. They don't get that He loves them this way. Well, what's, what's the solution for that dilemma? Paul says in Romans, how can they believe in the one they never heard of? How can they how hear of them unless somebody preaches to them? And preaching can happen like this. Preaching can happen over a cup of coffee in a conversation. How will they know unless somebody tells them? Whose job is it to tell them? But us who have received this. And so, 
I, I know how it is, and, and I probably have heard times where somebody was challenging me to share my faith with others, and it can feel like a burden or a duty. And it is a duty. There's, there's worse things in the world than doing the right thing, a godly thing, just out of duty. So it's not a bad starting place. But hopefully we come to a place where it's like, I get to. Uh, if you didn't know this, I'm excited that I get to be the one to tell you that God loves you like this. And let me spell it out for you. Let me walk through a few verses with you that just in vivid detail talk about his self-sacrificial love for you. And so God's got a mission for you. He's got, he's got dreams for you that are bigger than your dreams. Dreams of success and, and family, and those things are great. But he's got dreams that you would be his messenger of this good news. It's for the nations. It's for everybody. That's how it started. The sprinkling of all the nations, using that sacrificial imagery. Every, this is available for everybody on the planet. The story has come and, and come to its fruition, and now it's up to us to share. And so I hope you go home with a little edge to share a little bit more about God. I mean, what could their rejection take from you when you know a holy God, a unique God, a self-sacrificing God? That's our God. And he proved it once and for all, ultimately, in the gift of Jesus Christ. So let me pray as we close out our time and, and reflect on our amazing God. God, thank you so much that we've had a chance to take some time and look through some scriptures that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in this way. You're holy. You're unique. You're self-sacrificing. We could never do enough to earn your love. And we don't have to because of your sacrifice. It doesn't take anything away from your holiness. You demand purity. But you have purified us through the blood of Christ. Your righteous demand for holiness and your grace are not at odds. They come to their fulfillment in Christ and we are the beneficiaries of that. So we just thank you. We, we, we fill our hearts with gratitude. We rejoice because of what you've done. All for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.